Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us online if you're doing that. And how do you follow a segue like that? Well, I'll do my best. How many of you have played Monopoly before? How many of you have lost at Monopoly before? Okay. So here's the deal in Monopoly. You're trying to get more money than anybody else, and you're trying to bankrupt everybody else. And you do that, you buy properties, and if you get two or three of the same color, you get a Monopoly, and then you can put houses on, on hotels, and the hope is the other players, they land on your property, and you charge them rent, and then, but if you're on the back, bad side of that, like I often am, you're running out of resources, and so then you got to mortgage your properties, and you got to do all this stuff, and eventually, like you're done, you're bankrupt, you're out, and, and when you get in this process, there's, a, there's an inevitability I'm going to lose. Why do I share that? Well, we have been looking at the book of Revelation, and we've been talking about people who would rebel against God, who resist God. How does that play out? Well, it's a bit like losing a monopoly. There's an inevitability to it. And I want us to think about that today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to uh, Revelation 15 and 16, and we're going to go through this passage, and we're going to wrestle with the question, what is the end of those who rebel against God? What is the end of those who rebel against God? Now, even if you haven't been with us, uh, we've been looking at the book of Revelation for the last number of weeks, and the kind of the flow goes like this. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, gives us the, the outline. Uh, God is going to communicate with John through symbols, through an apocalypse, but that apocalypse is going to be a prophecy. So this is not for speculation. It is a prophetic word to seven churches and how they're supposed to live in the midst of great persecution. They're being asked to worship the Roman emperor as God. And John communicates that in the form of a letter. So he is shepherding these people. John himself has felt the sting of persecution. He has been exiled to the island of Patmos. And so chapters one through three are God's specific instructions to those seven churches, what's going well, what needs to change. And then chapters four and five then take John in a vision into heaven, and he sees that things are ordered in heaven, but they're not on earth. And so there's a scroll with God's plan to bring heaven to earth in the form of vindicating the righteous and judging the unrighteous, but there's seven seals on it, and there's no one with the authority or the ability to open the scroll. And John begins to weep until he hears about the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. Militaristic terms for sure, thinking about conquering, but then he looks and he sees a, a, a slain lamb. And the message is, the conquering lamb who conquered by giving his life, he's fit to open the seals. And so that begins a series of judgments three sets of seven. The first is the seven seals, and that's in chapters six through eight. And the seventh seal introduces the seven trumpets, and that's in chapters eight through 11. We get to chapter 11, and before we get to the third set of judgments, which is the bold judgments, we get an interlude that explains there is something going on in the spiritual world that imp impacts the physical world. It, not everything that is happening is, is met by the eye. And we looked at that interlude last week. And now we're to chapters 15 and 16. We're going to see the third set of seven judgments, the bold judgments. Now, when we talk about the judgments, 
The seal judgments affected a quarter of the earth, a quarter of the population. The trumpet judgments affected a third of the earth and a third of the population. Well, why didn't God just wipe everybody out? Because God is not an angry God looking to take people out. He's trying to warn people, you need to turn. But at some point, God's justice and his righteousness says, I need to act. And that's what is happening as we move into the bold judgments. God's judgment is going forward to the end. And in the end, he will deconstruct everything that stands in opposition to him, and he will bring his kingdom to earth. That's where we've been, that's where we are, and where we're going. So let's pick it up in chapter 15. It says this. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels and seven plagues, who are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. We have talked about, in the book of Revelation, numbers are used symbolically. Seven is the number of completion. So seven angels speaks to this completeness of of God's judgment. Then we take a step back from judgment for a minute, and we talk about those who have overcome the world, those who have overcome the system by giving their life. Here's what it says, verses 2 through 4. And I saw something like a sea of glass fixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image... And when we had that interlude in chapters 12 through 14, we met a dragon representative of Satan and two beasts representative of his puppets on earth doing his bidding. One beast looked like he had come back from the dead. He'd recovered from a fatal wound. He was the Antichrist. He set himself up in a world government. The second one was a beast who served him and was more local and forced people either through loss of life or economic pressure to worship the beast. Well... There were people who were victorious over the beast. How? Over the beast? How? They refused to worship them, and it cost them their lives. But they're called victorious. And his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses. Again, Moses is talking about he was the one who led Israel out of Egypt through ten plagues. They get out, and Pharaoh decides to chase them, and, and they're backed up against the Red Sea, and the people think we're going to die. God opens the Red Sea, Israel goes through. When the Egyptians come in, they're drowned at sea. And afterwards, they sing this song of victory. Well, the people are singing the same song that Moses sang. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. Why this interlude? Why this change? Well, I think we want to get perspective here. Because living in the world system, you could think, I win as I worship the beast. He looks like God. I buy into the world system. But this is saying, no, you lose. Leith Anderson's a pastor, author. I enjoy reading him. He gave this example of this very unique bike race in India. You get on the starting line and the gun goes off and it's a timed race. But the idea is you go as short a distance as possible without putting your foot down. If you put your foot down, you lose. You're disqualified. So you can imagine you got to just pedal a little bit and keep that bike going. Pedal a little bit more. And then when the gun goes off for the second time, whoever's gone the shortest distance wins. They win the race. Now imagine you don't know the rules and the gun goes off 
and you're just peddling for all you're worth, and you look back at those people who are just creeping along, and you think, I'm winning, I'm winning big. Bang, the gun goes off, and you think, I won. And you find out, no, you didn't, because you didn't know the rules. There are people who are buying into this world system, who are worshiping the beast, who are thinking, I've won. No, 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 you've lost. And so the warning goes out, understand what's happening. Verses five and six, after these things, I looked at the temple of the tabernacle and testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. They're coming out of the temple with bowls. What? To implement judgment. This judgment is coming from God. Verses 7 and 8. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one is able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Have you ever been caught in a smoky situation? You need to step back. It, it burns your eyes. And, and smoke was part of the worship of God. And it, it was symbolic of the, the, the mystery, the awesomeness, the other that God is and we are not. Yes, in Jesus, he is approachable, but in in a sense, God is awesome. He stands apart from us. Can I try and capture what's going on here? There were seven seal judgments. It affected a quarter of the earth. Seven trumpet judgments. It affected a third of the earth's population and a third of the earth. And it was God saying, listen, listen. Listen, what do I have to do to get your attention? But at some point, God says, enough. And we've reached that point. With the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the introduction of the bold judgments, we are moving towards the final judgment of God. From first through eighth grade, I shared a room with my younger brother. He's three years younger than me. And if we didn't fight every night, we fought five out of seven nights. We were on the second floor. And it would be going, and my parents would hear whatever they hear, and my dad would holler upstairs, hey, you boys, you better settle out. You know, I don't want to have to come up there. Usually one would do it, but sometimes there'd be a second call. Hey, you're not listening. I don't want to have to come up there. And every once in a while, we just wouldn't get the message. And here's what would happen. That's the first foot on the first stair and the second one. And people, when the first foot hit the first stair, there was no going back. My dad was coming upstairs and it wasn't going to end well for me and my younger brother. And in those 30 seconds it took him to get upstairs, I'd go, hey, you, you, no, it was you, it was you, you. You guys had your chance. You were warned, and you didn't get it. God is, trying, God is not an angry God looking just to put it to people. He's warning that people would turn, but at some point, you don't turn back. The holiness, the righteousness of God demands that he acts, and this is what's going on here. 
So then we're going to move now into, remember, our third set of seven judgments, the bold judgments. The first five bold judgments are parallel with the trumpet judgments, which were parallel, we talked about, with the plagues in Egypt. And the idea was back in Egypt, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, was an archetype of what? The proud ruler of the world power who would not listen to God. And then it's played out over and over again in history, and particularly with our first listeners with the Roman Empire. So here we go with the bold judgments. So then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out, first bowl, and poured out his bowl on the earth and became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. Remember, God's people are spared his judgment. They're not spared persecution, but they're spared his judgment. This parallels the sixth plague on Egypt. People were afflicted with sores. And the idea is, will you turn to me? Second and third bowls are in verses three and four. Then the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters and they became blood. This parallels the first plague against Egypt. God turned the Nile River into blood and he took away drinking water and all the sea creatures. Again, you take away drinking water, you're taking away something that's needed for life. At this point, we might say, well, what, what is God's deal? Why, why does he keep doing this? Well, verses 5 through 7 talk about that. It says, I heard the angel of the water saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. God is being God. He is gracious and he is merciful, but he is holy and is righteous. And at some point, he will judge. And if God refuses to judge, we have nothing to look forward to. We have no hope. Let me try by analogy. If the Lancaster County judges and the judges of the city of Lincoln, because they're too kind and they're too nice, refuse to hand out sentences for people convicted of crimes, we're done. Yeah, I mean, guilty of murder, but you know, I mean, it's just so hard, I just can't see that, so I'm gonna let you go. Guilty of assault, guilty of armed robbery, guilty of, yeah, I just can't bring it to you. Where are we as a culture? What's the point of doing police work? I mean, what's the deterrent? We need our judges to execute the sentences that are in the book. If that's true on a human level, how much more with God? We need a righteous God. Thankfully, he's also gracious and merciful. Let me ask on a world scale. There's a horrific war going on in Ukraine right now. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people have been displaced. Civilians have been killed. How, how many people have died in this? In large part because Vladimir Putin decided he wanted Ukraine back. You know what? I don't think Putin will face judgment in this world. I think he's too insular. I, I, I may not know what I'm talking about, but there's a chance because he's got nuclear weapons. He's got this and that. He will never face consequences in this world. And if that's not true of Putin, what about Stalin? What about Hitler? What about, what about these people? What, where's their judgment come? 
We'll go crazy if we think there's not ultimately judgment. If, if you've lost family, or if you've lost friends in Ukraine, or if you've lost family or friends in a genocide, we gotta know there's justice. And God's promise and hope is that there is, and he will bring it. So we're in the middle of the bold judgments, and we get the fourth one in, in, in verses eight and nine. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and was given to him to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and what they do? They blaspheme the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent, so as to give him glory. They're suffering, and they still won't listen. That shows the hard attitude towards God, the resistance toward God. So I was a lifeguard four years. After my sophomore year in high school, junior year, senior year, freshman year in college. The last three in Houston, Texas. The, the sun in South Texas is really hot. And my parents would say, you know, you ought to, you ought to wear a shirt up there in the, the stand. No. Do you know what I was into? I was into a power tan. I wanted a good tan. So I put stuff on it and wore a shirt on. But, you know, it happened every year. I didn't seem to learn. But the second or third weekend, I came home, and what did I have? I had a sunburn. Thank you. I did. And it was peeling, and it was itching. And you know what I finally did? I wore a shirt. Okay, maybe I was a little slow, but mom and dad, okay, I'll, I'll put this shirt on. I, I repented. I turned. These people won't do that. They're so resistant to God that they won't turn. Fifth bowl, verses 10, 11. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Notice it's poured out on the throne of the beast. The throne is the source of power. Remember, this beast has set himself up as the Antichrist. I've come back from the dead. He's got a fatal wound from which he looks like he's healed. Dude, you can't even bring light. The world has gone dark, and you can't do anything about it. And they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Sixth bowl, verse 12, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and his water was dried up. Remember, we talked about the Euphrates being a, a border. It's a deterrent. But for the Roman Empire, that they were concerned about the Parthians from the east. And, and this is indicative of God will remove his hedge of protection, and they will be invaded. And his water was dried up, so the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Rome will face war. They will face an invasion. Why? Because you would not recognize me, and you thought you could have your own defense. You thought you were in charge of your kingdom. We'll see. Well, this idea of war spreads from Rome to the world, and that's what we see in verses 13 through 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Frogs are dirty. And remember, we met the dragon in chapter 12, representative of Satan, the two beasts in chapter 13, the Antichrist and his servant directing people to worship them and ultimately Satan. Satan delegated power to them. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. There's going to be a day when the world comes together, evil comes together to try and take on God. Parenthetical comment, verse 15, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so we not 
walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. Imagine the day of battle, and the soldier doesn't have his clothes, doesn't have his armaments, and he has to go find them. Jesus is saying, my, my, that, that day of the great battle, that's when I will return, and I'm coming back. Don't be caught unaware. God has been consistent with that metaphor throughout the Bible. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. Remember, we're talking symbolically. Harmageddon refers to the city of Megiddo. It was a famous international battlefield, about a two-day walk from Jerusalem. If you know your Old Testament, King Josiah died on the fields of Megiddo. Now, other sources in Revelation, Revelation 14, Revelation 20, say this final battle happens right outside the gates of Jerusalem. So it's not the location that's important here. But it's the idea that there's going to be a final gathering of evil against God, and God is going to win. Remember, we're talking about the game. Of, remember Monopoly? Andy's not doing so well. He doesn't have many properties. He keeps having to mortgage his properties, and there's an inevitability. This is where this thing is going. Then the seventh bowl. This is when you've got to cash in. You're bankrupt. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. What is done? The kingdom of God is set up on earth. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man came upon the earth. This is apocalyptic language saying God is going to move. And we will look into that in chapter 19. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. The great city commentators talk about what is the great city well i think ultimately it's organized humanity against god the verse talks about babylon babylon's an archetype of the nation state that would stand against god in the old testament they invaded jerusalem and they destroyed the temple and took god's people captive but god said that's only going to go on for 70 years and i'm going to raise up persia these nation states these human institutions that would stand against god they pop up all the time and they look like they're eternal, but they come and they go. Who were John's first readers? Seven churches who were under the thumb of who? The Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is going to last for, I, mean, I don't know if there's been a greater empire in our world's history. Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace, the road system, they'll last forever. No, they won't. They come and they go, like every nation state. We arguably live in the most powerful country in the world. That's great. But we will come and we will go. God is eternal. Nothing will stand against him. Verses 21, 20 and 21. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail. Because the plague was extremely severe. One commentator Andrew Beasley Murray said this speaks of the unspeakable grandeur of the awfulness of God's judgment. It's awesome. It's frightening. It's terrifying. It's amazing all in one. Imagine being up on a 14,000-foot mountain up in Colorado, and all of a sudden you're caught in a storm. Boy, if you can find shelter in a cave and watch that, it's, it's an amazing experience. It's a terrifying experience. But if you're not out in it, it's different than if you're caught in it. This speaks of the judgment of God. So we've asked this question, 
What about those? What's the end of those who rebel against God? Real simple, destruction. That's inevitable. You will be destroyed. Destruction is the end of those who rebel against God. And why all this talk about judgment? Is God just angry? Is he trying to scare people? Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. This way. About 14 years ago, I had an appointment down at, uh, doctor's appointment down at uh, 84th and Pioneers that ran late, and this is before we were in the building. So I had to go up 84th. We were meeting at the back of the Bible building. I had to hustle to get back, and I was driving up 84th, and I stop at O, and then and I get going, and somewhere about Vine, a police officer steps out, and he does this. He points at me, and he points over there. He wants me to pull over. He was stopping me to give me a citation for excellent driving is what he was doing. He was giving me a certificate. I just lied. That's not what he did. He had his radar gun, and he said, see, it says 51. This is a 40-mile-an-hour zone. He wrote me a ticket. But since I hadn't gotten a ticket for I was could qualify for the stop class. So that's what I did. I signed up over here at 33rd and Cornhusker, and you have to go there for a number of hours and take a quiz. But here's what I remember about the stop class. They kept talking about what happens when you don't wear a seatbelt. They didn't use actual pictures, but they used schematics. If you don't hit a seatbelt, you get hit from behind it, and you snap forward, and that's, that's one thing on your brain. Then you hit the, 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 the windshield, and if you don't go through, that snaps your brain back, and, and they're giving me all these schematics, and I thought, okay, I got it. Why do you keep hammering this? Why do you think they kept talking with those schematics and diagrams about what happens? when you don't wear a seatbelt? To convince us to do what? To wear a seatbelt. Look, if God just wanted to judge the world, he'd just do it. But he waits and he waits and he puts in his word. Why? So people won't face the judgment of God. He's not angry. He's not after people. He's long-suffering, he's patient, but he's holy and he's righteous and he's just. And at some point, human rebellion, human sin demands that he act. So he waits and he waits in hopes that people will turn to him. So this has application at least on two levels for you personally. Are you buying into the human institution? Are you buying into worship? I will, this government, this nation, this state, this value of popularity, this value of comfort is, remember, it's, it's a system of intimidation and deception. It looks good. It looks like it'll give life. Are you buying? Am I buying? That's first, on a personal level. Because God will judge. Second one, who are the people in your sphere of influence who don't know God? I hope our attitude is good. They're going to get what they got coming to them. Because that's not God's attitude toward those people. Read this week, 2 Peter 3 talks about the return of God. And Peter said, you know, some people kind of scoff you because God hasn't returned. Let me tell you, God's not slow. God's not constrained by time. Hey, a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand times. No, God's not slow. He's patient. He's patient. Why? That people would turn to him. Who is it in your sphere of influence that needs to know about Jesus? Who is it that you need to befriend that God might work through you that people might not escape this? Look, living and following Christ in this world 
of deception and intimidation is going to ask some things of us. It's going to demand some things, and it's going to be some hard choices. When we were in Costa Rica for seven months learning Spanish, I would say probably more than any place else I learned to speak Spanish was my neighbor, Fernando. Every afternoon, I would go over to his house. He had an in-home business, and we would, we would just talk in Spanish. And as I got better in Spanish, one day he asked me, he said, Andy, let me ask you this. Um, the Costa Rican government taxes, he, he made cloth. It taxes my product, and the government, uh, the Bible says I'm to be in submission to the government to pay taxes. But I also know that the Costa Rican government will never enforce these taxes. My competitors are not paying taxes. They're selling it without taxes with no, no incrimination. What should I do as a Christian? Submit it to the authority of the Bible with an unfair expense, to which I said, no say, I don't know. <laughs> That's a hard choice. That's gonna cost your bottom line to follow Christ. On a personal level, I felt like God had called me to minister with Campus Crusade, um, yeah, for the first 15 years out of college. Uh, in my plan, I was gonna be married by 26 or seven years old. That hadn't happened. I was assigned in Colorado, but each summer I would go down to Dallas to raise support, and I networked through college friends who were involved in singles group. And in the midst of that, I got to know a young lady, and we went out a couple times, and there was a mutual interest. Um, but she let it, she had been involved at Campus Crusade at Iowa State, but she just let it be done. There was no way she'd go on staff with Campus Crusade. Not fair enough. But I decided, you know, I'm not going to pursue that relationship because I thought God had called me to this ministry. And in fact, he had someone else much, not much later, a few years later. But yeah, that was a hard thing. I was off schedule. I wanted to be married by 26. And every time I went to a wedding and they'd shoot the garter, you know, it's kind of like they'd push me up to the front. Oh, you get up to the front because you need help. You need help. And you know, I felt it. I wanted to be married. But the call of God was something else in my life. We live in a world of intimidating deception, a world that intentionally excludes God. It's going to cost us. What Jesus is saying is the reward for following me is even greater. It's a spot in my kingdom, a place with no more tears, no more suffering. We'll get into that as we get into Revelation verse 21. So in the years, my first years on staff, well, I had a, a colleague who worked for a couple of years, and then he joined the Marine Corps. I think he joined them about 88 or 89. And as such, he was on the first, uh, or he was in the first Gulf War. And he said, after he got back, he said, Andy, I was about the third wave in when we decided to go forward. And I said, well, what was that like? He said, I didn't do anything but direct prisoners. That's what happened. He said, you know, the, the, the air campaign had been such and the initial attack had been such. These Iraqis figured out, I'm going to die. So just hands up. So he said, my job was directing them this way. I mean, in mass, they're this way. And I said, you know, I felt sorry for those guys. I'm glad we didn't have to shoot them. They had no chance. I'm glad they got the message instead of to keep fighting. There's a message here. Rebellion against God. You can lose. 
as much as that soldier had compassion in the Iraqis, God has infinitely more compassion. He's not waiting to stick it to people to judge him. In fact, he patiently waits. He talks about his judgment so people would be aware and they would respond appropriately. See, destruction is the end of those who would rebel against God. But there's a God who wishes no destruction on anybody. And he longs for people to come to Jesus. Would you pray with me, our Father in heaven? We're grateful for your word. It's sobering. It's hard. It's challenging. Um, but it's true. Thank you for your character. You're, you're long-suffering. You're patient. You're loving. But you're also just in your righteousness and you're holy. And at some point, that justice, that holiness, that righteousness demands that you act. Lord, that we would not be pulled in by the deception. We would not bow to the intimidation. And we would have a heart for those people around us who are deceived, who have been intimidated. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.